Hey friends, just a heads up, this episode contains mature content. Hey Taylor, thank you so much for chatting with me today. Super excited to have you here. I hope you're ready to answer some questions. Very interested to hear uh, what kind of questions you have. This is such a great project to be doing. Thank you. I'm happy to hear that. I usually start these podcasts by asking the question, have you ever been in a relationship? Kind of just to break the ice. But I know that you have been and that you're currently in one. So I'm wondering instead if you can tell us how you would define a relationship. Oh, Lord. and thank you for listening to another episode of Have You Met Aaliyah? This podcast is used to speak to interesting, wonderful people around the world about their lives. And this month, we're focusing on the diverse relationships that exist around the world. Today, I'm talking to Taylor McNally. And today, we're going to talk about so many different things, including first relationships, first times, open relationships, parenting, and of course, what happens when you think you found the one. And we're also going to talk about what it's like to be one of Calgary's prominent Black activists while also being in an interracial relationship. Okay, so let's dive in. Taylor, how would you define a relationship? As a romantic relationship, it would have to be someone who you share a, a certain bond with, a special bond with, somebody that, somebody that you share share things with that you don't share with just anybody else. I mean, I, I think the topic around relationships is so neat because there are so many different forms of it. And I've had the pleasure of, you know, exploring so many different forms of relationships. But I mean, in just a, a basic relationship term, I guess, a beautiful connection you share with somebody. I love it. Beautiful answer. Now, obviously, how we view relationships changes throughout our lives. And I'm sure you had a very different idea of relationships when you were much younger. So what was your idea of a relationship? What were some of the foundations you had in understanding what relationships were from a young age? And really, when you were entering relationships for the first time, what were you thinking about? I mean, were we really thinking when we're younger? (laughs) I mean, you know, I came from a a pretty broken home. Uh, I was raised by a single mom. So I never really had that father figure or that male figure in my life to kind of show me, show me the ways of how to be treated And, you know, going back to that term of relationships as well, I don't think I ever was able to really build on a good foundation of what a relationship was and whether that's romantic or, you know, platonic or friendship either. So my relationships have been pretty broken over the years. It's only until recently where I've really been able to establish some really beautiful connections and relationships. But, you know, as a child, I think my first boyfriend was, I was 11 or 12. I'm not really sure what I was thinking there. I think it was just, I had been bullied for so long as well as as a kid and boys never really liked me to begin with. So when I had moved to this new place and people were actually interested in me. I was like, okay, well, this is what I'm supposed to do. And it, you know, now I have a boyfriend too. (laughs) 
you know, I completely, I really do. I completely understand what you're saying and the framework that we have when we're younger. I get that. All right, just for a little bit of context, Taylor, you grew up in Saskatchewan, right? Well, I was born in Saskatchewan, and then I moved to Cremona, Alberta, which is a village of 400 people when I was about 10 or 11. Goodness. Yeah, so I was in Saskatoon, a big city, and already, you know, I moved around a lot as a kid. I wasn't able to really build those strong relationships and then moved to a whole different province in in a village of 400 people. And, you know, also being one of the only black people that many of these people had ever seen to begin with. You know, there were so many things kind of surrounding how my relationships were built in the first place. Wow, 400 people. I can kind of relate. I did not spend my life growing up in a place that small, but I did spend a majority of my younger life growing up in rural Saskatchewan. And um, yeah, I don't know if we ever talked about that. No. Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan, actually. Wow, okay. Very <laughs> yeah. I moved away as soon as I could. I, I personally really struggled growing up in Saskatchewan in regards to internalizing a lot of racism. Mm, mm-hmm. When I first moved away, I hadn't even properly realized the impact that growing up in a city like Moose Jaw, in a community like I did, I hadn't realized the impact that that had on me until I was put into different situations and interacting with people and realized that I was aggressively concerned about the fact that I was not white and how that affected my safety and how people perceived me and how I was able to interact with the city. It was really detrimental to my well-being. And then I came across this quote, which actually it was a tweet, so it was definitely meant to be a little bit humorous or provide a little bit of comedic relief, but it actually really hit me. And it said something along the lines of, did you grow up thinking you were ugly and unlovable or did you grow up as a black person around too many white people? (laughs) I saw that recently (laughs) and oh my Lord, yeah, that was relatable. So with all of that in mind, you've mentioned that you entered your first relationship around the age of 12. How did that affect your self-image? How did it affect the way you saw yourself in the world? Um, I mean, it definitely boosts some confidence. Of course, I'm 30 now and looking back at that um, situation, again, we're, we're kids, right? How, what does relationship really mean then? Um, but I am grateful for him being my first boyfriend. You know, he was, he was a great person. <laughs> it's funny when we look back on moments because you know when I look back at that I feel like we were so much older then I guess that's just the memories we have it's just weird thinking of those times and and your mentality then but again you know well I was 12 I guess he probably would have been about 15 or 16 very nice you know he he carved me this dolphin out of stone that I still have even (laughs) and uh, very sweet and so it was a good kickoff but I mean it was kind of downhill from there until I met my current partner (laughs) how long have you been with your current partner be uh i guess will be two years in april and is this one of your longest relationships uh yes yeah i would well longest consistent live-in relationship i guess because again i've had some very odd unconventional relationships you know i've had one that has lasted you know like 10 years but if somebody were to look at that they wouldn't call it 
you know, a regular relationship. I'm not sure how else to say that. <laughs> what makes this relationship unconventional? It was somebody I had met when I was 17, I guess. And it was very, I had started seeing him. Uh, it was the first time I had ever cheated on anybody. I was seeing somebody else at the time. And of course, you know, again, I was young. I was, I had just recently moved from home. Um, I left home at 16. I kind of had moved in with this man just because, you know, I didn't have very many other options. And it's like, well, this is my boyfriend. I should just be living with him. So I met this other person who was just in incredible. He's an incredible human. And it's, it's a, a relationship that we were able to kind of hold on to for so long. But you know, we never lived together. Sometimes we could go a bit without talking or seeing each other, but that connection and I would go as far to, to say, you know, some sort of soulmate connection that had always been there. It's like seeing an old friend that you haven't seen in a while, but when you see them, it just picks up off where you left it. There's no questions asked. You don't have to ask about where you've been, what they've been doing. You just know. It was a beautiful thing. Honestly, I can't imagine how conflicting or complex that must have been. But if you don't mind, I'd like to revisit the comment that you made about it being the first time that you cheated and obviously people cheat in relationships all the time and to an extent i feel like this should be the stepping stone into a conversation about other types of relationships or learning what kind of relationship is appropriate for you and maybe that could be introducing something like polyamory mm, yeah yeah that 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 can definitely be the issue because I've also felt that as well. Other times it's revenge and other times it's just, you just don't want to hurt anybody's feelings or again, you don't have any other options, you know? Oh, of course. There are so many motivations for our actions. However, I'd like to know more about what you mean by revenge. Well, so the, the second time, I guess I would have cheated because um, there was twice and that's it, everybody. <laughs> um, the second time uh, was with my daughter's dad and it was an incredibly abusive relationship um, but he was uh, I mean I wouldn't call it revenge maybe spitefulness maybe it was just not giving a fuck and right. he would work out of town and so an old friend of mine and I you know started hanging out and that's when that happened so yeah it was more just needing some sort of actual love or connection or feeling good because obviously my current partner was not making me feel those things. Wow, Taylor, thank you so much for the vulnerability and for sharing that with us. I, I imagine that throughout the years, you've definitely learned a lot about relationships and about yourself and probably spent quite a bit of time reflecting. And I know that the relationships we go through impact the relationships we enter. Essentially, our old relationships leave things with us that we carry into our new relationships. Again, thank you for everything that you've shared. Through all of these changes, through all of these relationships, I'm wondering what you've learned about ending relationships. That's a good question. <laughs> oh, I mean, I'm not sure if I've ever been able to successfully end a relationship on the, you know, I think 
even in times where it's like, oh, we ended, it's very mutual, you know, we're very on the same page. There's always hurt feelings. There's always some resentment that there's, I don't think it's as smooth as some people make it out to seem. Um, because like you had said, I've had a very broad range of relationships and no matter what, um, at the end of the day, they've never ended, um, in a way, you know, oh, well, let's just be friends. Let's just, you know, everything's fine and we're going to move on and find better people. And um, I'm not sure if there's a way to make that transition better. I mean, obviously communication, communication helps so many things. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not, that's a really good question. I'm not sure I've ever thought about what I've learned from ending relationships. I mean, other than having a great support system and still staying true to your values and beliefs, because, you know, there's been many times I've ended a relationship and then, you know, a relationship I very much should not be in and still end up back in that relationship, even though it's very toxic or abusive. Relationships can be really tricky, especially because it seems as though we're giving a part of ourselves to another person and... And when the relationship ends, it feels as though they've taken a part of us, whether it's a portion of our life, you know, they took some of some years from our life, or I guess we gave them years of our life, or they took with them like secrets and moments and these memories. And it's weird to move on from that, to leave that, to recognize when something is toxic, especially when you have the good parts, the good memories, the good things, and you try to figure out what do the good things outweigh the bad, or does the bad make you long for the good, right? So this leads into my next question. Has anything changed about the way you enter relationships? Mm, I don't think anything has changed. Uh, especially, it's really <laughs> surprising as well with my current partner. Um, just in how we started and, you know, both of us not wanting any sort of commitment. I know when I was coming into it, I was still in the mindset of polyamory as well. And that was something he was not into. And I, and I think for me, even the version of polyamory in my head is still something that, or in that moment was still something I did not want I basically, you know, it's it, it was a protection of, well, I don't want to be hurt, so I don't want to commit myself to one person and, you know, have their well-being in my hands, so to speak. The circumstances around, you know, where my partner and I began, we were both in really rocky positions. I was in, especially in a really rocky position in my life, and I, I believe I, I did try ending it, <laughs> too. And, uh, and here we are, and to be honest, this is definitely the most fulfilling relationship I've ever had and the most supportive and I am incredibly grateful for the man I have in my life right now and I'm happy the way things have turned out. <laughs> I'm very lucky. And what makes your current partner different from your other partners? Oh boy, the, <laughs> the ability to listen, the ability to understand, you know, I think, and I mean, we still have the issues where our past traumas, mainly it comes down to that uh, ability to understand and listen. I think a lot of times 
trauma and past experiences get in the way in how we react and respond to situations. And I think that's where a lot of the times anger comes up and resentment and blame. This man never wants to fight with me. <laughs> Which is great, but you know, when you, it's something you're not used to, you know, you say something, you do something, and then you're waiting for that reaction, and then it never comes. It's like, okay, all right, you actually want to listen and talk this out. Okay, or you want to give me space so I can figure my shit out. Okay, like, it's, it is literally how a, a rela relationship, I feel, should be. And again, the support, too. The support is just anything, anything I want to do, it's just supported. Okay, so I'm going to change the subject just a little bit here and draw attention to the fact that you are a very prominent figure in this community. People know who you are. People know your initiatives. You are, it seems as though you're part of every social justice circle. You are an activist. You're an educator. You're a leader. And you're doing so in a way where you are commanding respect from the people around you. And in my experience, when you are a successful, motivated, determined woman, it can be very difficult to find somebody who is not intimidated by the pace at which you move through this life. So I'm wondering, with all of the work that you do for your organizations, the ones that you represent, the ones that you've built, how do you and your partner balance? How do you work together in that space? Absolutely. And, you know, that is definitely something I have struggled with. And, you, you know, again, my circumstances, I've just been raised and grown up to just be that strong woman on my own, especially after I became a single mom and was, you know, a single mom doing it for nine years. And, you know, and I say single mom because nobody was living with me. No one was paying my bills. It was completely me I, I don't have connections to family you know it was me doing that and it's hard to find somebody to understand my lifestyle or the fact that you know my kid comes first my mental health comes first and like you said you know community too community is also a part of that coming first and making sure the people around me are taken care of and he just like if I had to be with any of my exes right now while I'm doing what I'm doing, it would be a disaster. Like there's no other man who would have drove 16 hours up to Grimshaw in the middle of nowhere to stand outside in minus 30 weather or, you know, help create this uh, incredible peacekeeper security team to keep me and my, my team safe every time we're out on the road. Like he is just, again, supportive of everything and, and, and it's a wonderful thing. Okay, this is going to sound so cheesy, but I'm never going to get over listening to people talk about love and being loved. I think that is just oh, such a lovely, wonderful thing. So thank you so much for sharing that. Now, you have mentioned that you are in a relationship with a white man. And as a black woman myself, I've often kind of been a little bit hesitant to enter those relationships just because of the emotional work that comes from them. Yes, yeah. yes, that is also another thing. So for him to be doing all of this, it's like, wow, <laughs> all right. Was it always like that? Or were there ever learning curves or moments that you came across and you recognized that this might be a microaggression that your partner isn't even aware of? And maybe not in this relationship, but even in previous relationships. I, I don't know the demographics of your previous relationships, but were there ever little tensions or things that just required a little bit more work, I guess, 
conflict or things that you had to work through to be present and enjoy an interracial relationship? I've actually, I mean, I've been in a relationship with one black person ever, uh, and it was a very short-lived experience. And honestly, I think I hurt him a lot then. If he's listening, I apologize. That is something that, it, that is just, it's always been white men, um, and my partners have always been white men. I mean, that that explores a whole other can of worms in a sense, because, you know, within anti-racism and activism and all of this, my journey may be different than some simply because of how I was raised, where I grew up, you know, learning what microaggressions even were, you know, there was a large chunk of time in my life when I didn't realize, you know, this was a, racism was a collective experience that all of us were feeling out here. I thought, you know, it's always, even, even when somebody has called me a nigger to put me down or just being absolute garbage it was still never oh well this is just this is racism it's just them it's always been okay there's something wrong with me and then really coming into all of this and and learning and hearing of other people's stories and understanding like this is this is literally just a system that has been built this way. It's been interesting. So as much as my partner has been learning in the last year and a half, I have also been learning with him just as much. And I think that is a really neat experience as well, you know, for him to see things from his white privilege point of view, to me seeing things as a black woman who grew up in rural Alberta with a white mom and white friends and white community. It's very interesting. The more we chat and get to know one another, it becoming evident that you and I had very similar upbringings. I grew up with a single white mother in a white community around all white friends, white family. And in a lot of ways that felt very polarizing because the things that I was going through, the racism that I was experiencing, not only from the community, but even from my own family in ways that they didn't realize they were being racist, it made me feel very insecure and unsure and as though I was just this different being altogether. Like I didn't belong in this family. I didn't belong on my sports teams. I didn't belong in my classrooms. I really felt as though I had absolutely no place because nobody could understand what I was going through. And anytime I tried to explain it, people would get defensive, argumentative, and really like almost shun me for it. In fact, I think in the entire time that I lived in that city, I only interacted with one person. It was a professor of mine named Mr. Redstone. And he asked me how I felt about racism because he was just, for lack of a better word, he was just like really pissed off about it. And he came up to me one day and he was like, how do you feel about it? And that was the first time ever that anybody cared to hear what I had to say about racism. But until then, I really truly was under the impression that it wouldn't matter what I said, it wouldn't matter how I spoke it. And because of the way I grew up in this in this community and with this like negation from acknowledging racism or microaggressions in any form, I just grew up feeling very unlovable, unwanted, and really just lost a lot of love for myself in the process. And it actually prevented me from entering any kind of relationship. It prevented me from getting to know people. I 
wasn't open to a lot of friendships and I certainly was not open to relationships in any form. In fact, I didn't enter my first relationship until I was 20 years old because up until that moment, I really truly believed that because of my race as influenced by where I grew up that I I just wasn't deserving so of love sad. in any capacity. It is really sad. Like reflecting on it, it is really sad, but but it makes me happy to know that there are good relationships out there for people who grew up like us. Like listening to your story is making me feel very hopeful. Yes, yes it's possible. <laughs> it's happening. Um, you know, I think that's a really interesting dynamic that you've created for yourself. And maybe, and hopefully I'm wording this correctly, but do you know what I mean when I ask, do you think that you interact with the white community in a digestible way. I do know what you you mean and hmm, how, because I mean, and obviously, you know, me trying to muster words to make it make sense, you as a black woman in this experience, you will understand too. Like yes and no. Like when you said earlier about the first person hitting on you, it's like, what do I do with this power? I remember when I first started working in bars and you know even then i would for the most part even in calgary be one of the only black servers on and you know you know some of these places hire you because you're exotic and you look different and you're cute and and so in that way and even being within events you know i am an mc for a lot of events i do um, a lot of shows and organize events and being in those spaces it's like digestible because not necessarily putting on a show but you know you hold some sort of power in the sense that you do stand out you are different and rather than hinder on that use that to your advantage in a way but then when it comes to actually being i don't even want to say i was going to say when it comes to actually being you know that strong black woman i think it's just when you're actually being yourself and standing your ground i you know i when you're speaking out about something or if you go against something then suddenly you're not digestible anymore now it's you're that angry black woman now you're being you know argumentative so there's you know the the coin flips sometimes yes and sometimes no and i think even i remember i didn't know what a weave was i've had i had had braids before but i didn't know what a weave was until i was about 20 years old and i remember getting my first weave it was incredible and even just you know how that is digested you know the way i'm treated when i have my big afro as compared to when i have my straight weave in uh the experiences are very different Yes, thank you so much for bringing that up. I try to explain this to people quite often, but hair politics in the black community, it's a huge thing. People will really treat you differently based on how your hair is. Like if your hair is straight, if your hair is in an afro, if your hair is in braids, it literally impacts your life and people just don't understand that. And I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but up until 2014, employers could put a dress code on your hair, meaning they could actively discriminate against ethnic hair if they wanted to and refuse to hire or allow somebody to do their job if their hair was a certain way. And this was a really big thing that was never spoken about until 2014 when it became an issue when a black man was asked to cut his dreads and a black waitress was asked to 
put in a weave or remove her braids essentially from before she was allowed to serve on the floors. The way your hair looks as a black person does impact your life. Well, I remember in bars even as a server, because you had to keep that appearance so much, it was, you had to wear heels. And that was like, that was a thing. Like if you didn't come to work in your heels, you could be fired and that was all right because you had to look presentable and desirable to your customers. And like, yeah, that it's, it makes no sense. It's ridiculous. In my opinion, it's ridiculous. The way dress code is enforced to promote sexual attraction to a person, I find it a little bit absurd. Anyways, you've mentioned <laughs> in our conversation that you were previously in a polyamorous mindset and as i'm talking to more people i'm realizing that the understanding of what polyamory is is almost subject to who is in the polyamorous relationship it's a very manageable existence so i'm wondering how would you describe polyamory polyamory for me is having multiple relationships at a time and not just they're they're not even just based in sexual relationships i think even when you look at platonic relationships that falls into polyamorous relationships um i know i've been able to have multiple relationships at a time and maybe one of them is just somebody that i i see but there's no sexual aspect to it and so i i think polyamory means so many things for so many people again it's something there's so many different variations of it whether you know you you are living with multiple partners maybe there's one main partner i've never liked the idea of having a main partner everyone was very much equal to me or you know if you you all engage in sexual acts together or you only have you know it's very separate there's so many different variations of polyamory i find but i think it's just having very loving open open in the sense of communication because communication is the first thing that needs to be established within polyamory with more than one person i like that i like that you allow polyamory to be open oh yes that's i think it is number one for sure <laughs> is the uh, that adaption as well Thank you so much for that definition. I do agree with you that there are so many different forms of polyamory and so many different ways we can introduce different relationships into our lives in a way that is most effective for us. So when I first heard about polyamory, when I really started to become interested in it and learning more about it and the different forms of it, I did a lot of research. I did a lot of reading. I listened to a lot of podcasts, TED Talks. I really wanted to learn about like a proper polyamorous relationship and learn that it, there's not so much a proper polyamorous relationship. There are just important ways to think about it. And somebody in one of the works I came across said something like, when understanding polyamory, it's effective to consider yourself a collection of needs. Imagine your body, if you were to draw it out, imagine your body having a bunch of empty spaces and each of these spaces is a different need to be filled or satisfied. These are needs like, I don't know, like emotional connection, touch, just quality time, like essentially, essentially different derivations of our love languages and where we are in our lives. These things change over time. Some of the spaces grow, some of them get smaller, but when you're in a polyamorous relationship, you are finding fulfillment for these spaces from different people because it's it's really 
a lot to ask of somebody to fill every single empty space that you have as a person. That's a lot of responsibility and that's also assuming that the person who you are expecting these things from is capable of doing all of that and perhaps doesn't have to worry about their own spaces, which it's a lot to ask from one person, especially to ask that from one person for like the rest of your lives. So when you're in a polyamorous relationship, you are meeting these different needs through different relationships, through different partnerships. And I think that's a really beautiful way to look at it, a very rational way to look at polyamorous relationships and a really nice way to navigate relationships without expecting the world from another person because the world isn't made up of one person, it's made up of a collection of people who make it a world and in a sense human beings are the same thing. Now I know that polyamorous relationships, especially if you're just starting or where you're at in your life, they can have different conflicts and tensions and as you've mentioned, things like hierarchy or even jealousy become problems in polyamorous relationships and hinder successful relationships. So I'm wondering if you have any experiences with some of the things that make polyamorous relationships complicated. And this is the same thing that affects monogamous relationships as well, in the sense that we have our own unresolved trauma and insecurities that we have not been able to look at. You know, I find somebody in long-term relationships or marriages, you kind of lose that aspect of wanting to fulfill each other's or, or listen to each other's love languages or, or really have those, have that communication. And we just expect that person just to take whatever we give them and, and, and that they'll always be there, that they're never going to leave because they're so much invested into it. So sometimes that opportunity for somebody to do the work within themselves gets looked over. Whereas in a polyamorous relationship, it really forces you to, again, it, the, that communication, it forces you to look at those insecurities, talk about them, maybe figure out some unresolved trauma. It, it really helps to heal some of those parts of you that allows you to have strong relationships with multiple people because, you know, of jealousy or, I mean, let's be honest, mainly jealousy. And again, that has so many forms and jealousy really does come down to insecurities which as humans we all have that's just something that's there unfortunately and of course over time you know there are ideas that have been put onto us without any real ways to navigate through them and figure them out so I mean I've definitely had I mean I wouldn't say unhealthy polyamorous relationships just you know, at least on my part, not being able to have that communication down or wanting communication, which strains a relationship for sure. So I know that you have a daughter. How old is she? She's what? 10. She'll be How 11 this October. Okay, so she's getting to that stage where it's time to start talking to her about relationships. And I know that it's hard to navigate being a single parent and having to explain certain things to your child. So I'm just wondering, how do you have conversations with your child about relationships and the things that are a part of relationships? Because you were around 12 when you got into your first relationship and your daughter's now 10. I am struggling on those fronts like I keep speaking with my partner about like I gotta have the sex talk with her and I like I never I never had the sex talk you know by the time my mom did anything about anything I had already been sexually active for at least four 
years prior and because I'd lost my virginity at about 12 or 13 and, and you know she basically just brought me to the doctor and got me some contraceptive and that was it there was no talk about anything and you know again the all I had known was witnessing her failed relationships and the amount of times I had walked in on her um, having sex is way too many times that a kid should have to do that I don't know how to personally approach that like we haven't had those types of conversations yet which is sad for me because I know we have to uh, and I know those things are coming up and I and I just stall you know and I, I don't know how to approach them so if anybody has any advice out there please call me obviously I don't know what it's like to be a parent but I do remember when my mom kind of had the sex talk with me and it wasn't so much a sex talk it was more making me aware of rape culture and the way the conversation was delivered was really uncomfortable. First off, my mother, <laughs> she has a really hard time saying words like penis and vagina. So the conversation was explained to me with Dewey and PP, and I was like 13. So I, I was finding that strange because when we were learning about health, we were obviously using proper terminology. So I, for one, was having a hard time taking it seriously but then she started talking about like the dangers of sex and stis and rape and i then became very like afraid of sex and going to a catholic school as well the way that it was taught and spoken about i was just terrified i thought that if i did this thing i would be damned to hell indefinitely or my life would just end <laughs> so obviously not the best but the talk did come in response to one of my classmates, I was in seventh grade, going into eighth grade, and one of my classmates had her first baby. She's doing well now, and I think she has four children to this at this point, but it was, to me, something that I had never even thought possible. Because at that stage, when I was 12, 13, I wasn't even comfortable holding somebody else's hand. I didn't even admit to having a crush on someone. I thought that was still kind of gross and weird. So to be naked and intimate with another person who I thought was at the same like pace as me, I just, I couldn't imagine it. Well, that's a thing too, right? I look back on where I was at age 10 and then look at where she is and it's very different. But in the same sense, you know, they have so much technology now and you don't even know where to start because you don't know what they know at this point and what they've learned or what their friends know, right? Because every kid is learning at a different pace and we can see that you know when she has friends over and they're having conversations and it's like some kids it's like man you are like far advanced in what you know and i don't know if i'm comfortable with that <laughs> i haven't had those conversations with her yet it's just <laughs> it, yeah it, it's it's a weird thing to look at your kid and then look at where you were or see other kids it's it's weird and it's weird being a parent Oh, I can totally imagine that it's difficult to have those conversations as a parent. I, I don't even know where I would start, but based on the conversations you've had so far, what has it been like? You know, I wouldn't say we've had to have huge conversations, except, you know, I, and she's in her room next door. Hopefully she can't hear me. She might be upset. 
Um, but you know, the, uh, the period just came her first one and she didn't tell me, you know, I had seen something in the bathroom and then it was like, first you have your little mom moment. I'm in the bathroom. I'm like trying not to cry. I'm like, Oh my God. Cause it's like, you know, they are growing up, but then it's like, you know, you got to talk with them. And it's like, I don't know how to do this. And I don't want the, her to feel awkward. And, but I just, I went in and sat down and, you know, just said, you know, I, I, I saw this and, um, I didn't know that, uh, you were experiencing this yet. And, and it was her first one. And so it's like, okay, well, like if, if you have any questions and cause we've, I guess we've talked about periods briefly before, cause of course kids, have, they don't care about your privacy. If you're in the bathroom, they're just going to come in anyway. And then they're going to be asking questions like, what's this, what are you doing? And it's like, okay, well, this is how this happens. So we've kind of had a conversation of why or how it happens uh, a period but I think that was the biggest conversation we've had and it went very well I'm still very proud of myself and for her in that moment and everything's been totally cool <laughs> she's even you know it's not awkward around my partner which is great that's been I think the biggest conversation we've had to have and then next I really need to get on this whole relationship sex talk <laughs> has she ever asked you about sex if she sees people kissing on TV, she's like, that's disgusting. Her friend at school, because she was doing hub learning, and then when she went back, she got all the down low, all the drama that was happening in class. And she's like, my friend, um, she had a boyfriend in class. She's like, she's a kid. That's gross. I'm like, all right. At least I know where you're at. <laughs> You know, I could definitely relate to that feeling. I think I was in that stage for a very long time in my life. I was not interested in relationships at all. I was a huge nerd. I cared about learning. I was super invested in science and arts and writing. I literally like if a boy messaged me or showed interest, I wouldn't even notice like I was asked out a couple times and I usually said things like, I'm sorry, I have to study. <laughs> like, I can't. I really didn't think about dating until I got to university. And even there, it still wasn't a massive concern. I was like, I'm going to be prime minister of Canada. I don't need to have the drama of a relationship. So that's just how I was for a very long time. Because well, now look at you, okay? <laughs> You're doing very well. You're a very accomplished, successful woman. Well, thank you so much. I really, I really do appreciate that. Now, I know that we're getting to an end of our wonderful conversation here. So I'm going to ask you one more question. Based on your experiences in relationships, life, conflict, everything that you've gone through, what advice would you give to your younger self? I think for me, the biggest thing would just be, you know, don't allow yourself to feel stuck you know you're never stuck I think something for me is a lot of the times when I got in really bad relationships it, it was either an escape or because I felt like I had no other choice you know when I met daughter's dad it was at a very bad time in my life I had to move in with him and then I allowed him to seclude me from everybody and um you know, lose what small friendships I had. I had no family, put myself in this really toxic situation. I, I think the biggest thing would be to know that there are other options and that you don't have to accept shitty and poor treatment like that. Stay true to my, my values and my morals and stay true to myself. It's, it's wild, you know, people see me and for the most part, I see myself as a strong woman that, you know, I don't take shit. 
somebody does something, I stand up and I say something. But when I look back, and I've had many really toxic relationships that were just no good for me, it, it's just wild to see me as a person to take what I did or accept what I did and find myself in these relationships and find myself in them for so long. It just it just doesn't add up. You know, who I was in those relationships is not who I am as a person. So a huge thing is staying true to yourself. And however that may be, just never the boundaries. Boundaries are everything. Create boundaries and stick to them. Thank you so much for sharing all of that, Taylor. I know that people are going to find it very impactful. And just reflecting on that, hearing that out loud, it really introduces perspective. So thank you again. And thank you for being on this podcast and chatting with me about everything that you did, sharing so many wonderful things. I'm wondering now if there's anything that you'd like to mention that you're working on, events that are coming up. I know that you work and represent and have created so many different things in the city. So if people want to get in touch with some of the work you're doing, what's coming up this month? I am the co-founder of uh, Inclusive Canada. We are working on, you know, the freedom, liberation, equality, and equity of all people. And we do have a couple more events coming up this month as a part of Black History Month. We have on the 20th, uh, a talk about racism in the healthcare system. And we'll have MLA David Shepard uh, as our guest speaker for that event. And then we will also have the first ever Black Deaf Artist panel happening uh, on Saturday, the 27th at 2 p.m. That event is completely free and uh, it is the first of its type in Canada. There will be English ASL interpreters available and I really encourage everybody to check that out because I think it's incredibly important to continue focusing on that um, intersectionality between so many different things within racism and the people who experience it and making sure we are not forgetting about those who require a little more accessibility uh, that I think we could all work on. Yeah, we always have a lot of things going on with Inclusive Canada. I'm also a member of the Alberta Humanitarian Initiative. It's a collection of nine grassroots organizations within Alberta. We are constantly putting out new initiatives that we are working on together. I wish I could say I have other things coming up. You know, I still have TaylorMade Radio Entertainment Network. I am hoping to be working on Bubble Bath Buffet Season 2 this year. And I still have my marketing and branding company as well. So if people need help with their social media or websites or any sort of business coaching, uh, that is still available as well. Once again, thank you so much, Taylor. I'm Aliyah Aluma. Thank you for listening.